Yeah, delighted to be joined by our four fantastic founders in the space. I'd first like to welcome Ben Lipschitz, Chief Scientist at Brave, who are monetizing eyeballs, essentially, uh, through a more transactional model of media consumption. Uh, some of you may have heard of the basic attention token behind the Brave web browser, which raised a 35 million ICO uh, this year. Uh, ben will be able to tell us a little bit more. We're also joined by CCAM company Claws founder, Peter Hahn. Claws are enabling data-driven legal contracting, uh, making contracts real-time, dynamic, responsive, and live. So not static documents. Uh, contracts that respond to, say, the data from the Internet of Things, for example. Richard Burton also joins us. Richard is the founder and CEO of Bank Software, uh, who are making it easier for people to interact with both financial and blockchain assets through a wallet and browser. Uh, Richard was previously an early designer at the Ethereum Foundation, uh, which you might be able to tell us a little bit more about as well, and also consulted for Filecoin. We're also joined by another Seacamp portfolio company founder, uh, Ira Ariaki, founder and CEO of Seacamp company VeChain, uh, who are providing a software solution uh, for airlines to strategically share data and verify it. Um, it's an interesting application of blockchain technology, where the need for immutability and resistance to, to tampering through for uh, so yeah, delighted to, to join you guys. Cool. So I mean, I think what's really interesting is we have four fantastic companies being represented here. And in the context of the investor panel, you know, there was much said on kind of ICOs versus venture. So like, first kind of question I'd, I'd like to kind of put to the panel is, why did you guys pursue venture funding over ICOs? Um, Brave is the exception here. Um, it was kind of hybrid model. Um, you guys went and raised, I think, a couple million from the likes of Founders Fund, uh, and then did a nice year later. Something like more than that, but yes. And then you can, you can speak to that. Uh, but Richard, uh, perhaps we can start with you. Uh, Balance is just, I think, almost completed their crowdfunding campaign. Uh, is that correct? Um, and you, you also wrote a blog post um, about why you guys resisted the ICO route, um, which would be pretty easy for you. You could do it with a you know, really high valuation, probably raise a couple million. So why did you go down the crowdfunding route uh, and are you looking to an ICO in the future? I think that an ICO, or the sale of a token, uh, should breathe economic life into a protocol. So I think if you are um, a organization that is doing something really meaningful and building a kind of fundamental piece of technology, like a substrate protocol, um, then an ICO is a really good route. I also think if you genuinely have a useful, fast, like helpful uh, application that is going to need a token in some way to manage some of the operations of it, and I think Brave falls into that category, then an ICO is a really fantastic way to kickstart a network around your product. Um, Balance isn't at that stage as a project. We want to create a really good user interface for tokens, and we're very early on in the development of that. And, and so, you know, while I have been, uh, you know, I did see what happened when Ethereum did their token sale, and I did see what happened when Filecoin was setting up their token sale. Um, I didn't feel like I wanted to jump on that bandwagon at this stage because I want to prove that a user interface for tokens is really valuable. And, and then if an opportunity comes up in the future where we can do a decentralized application or we have the technological talent and the experience to, to build a new protocol ourselves, that that would be the stage at which we do it. So I think many times what you're seeing with some of the, the worst ICOs are people just coming up with a reason for a token. And whereas the best ICOs are people who've been working on a problem for years, thinking about a problem for years, and then they're using a token to solve that. And you can see that, like a great example is a project like Brave. I mean, we're talking about someone who built JavaScript 
leading the company and, and is now trying to solve the kind of crazy ad network system that we have in browsers. So I think it's just really important to kind of judge the sincerity of the founders when they say, I need a token to get the job done. Yeah, I think that's super right, and, and, and it's important there's a kind of intrinsic connection between the token and the network. Uh, ben, perhaps you can kind of speak behind Brave's rationale um, for issuing the, the BAT token and kind of where it sits within that kind of play. I mean, you started with uh, a whole bunch of excellent points. I'm going to come back to some of them. Um, yeah, it's pretty much, I mean, we want to be at the intersection of this funding model, but also it's very important to look into the future and uh, you know, focus focus on that. And so in our case, uh, uh, basic attention token is, as somebody was saying before, is an effort to, is an attempt to monetize something that's quite elusive, right? Quite, uh, you know, ephemeral in a sense, uh, which is uh, human attention. So if you, uh, probably a bunch of you have heard the phrase, you know, attention economy, yeah? Show of hands, yeah? Pretty much everybody, okay, in this room. So this is an effort to basically monetize that and also to change the way that the advertising ecosystem functions because we believe that's broken in a whole whole number of important ways. And so in a certain sense, well, we're not really obsessing about the you know, ICO, right? It's at this point in the past, we are really trying to focus on the future. We're trying to add value to the token. And the way we add value to the token is by uh, creating a product, number one, which is the Brave browser. Yeah. How many of you have tried it? Okay, well, brave.com, go download it, try it out. You'll like it, <laughs> I hope. So improving the product, and also creating, you know, sort of the, the underpinnings of a future financial model. Now I can speak to that and, you know, mention some of the details of what they're doing currently. Era, Peter, are we going to see a clause or the chain ICO anytime soon? Um, not, not from clause. Um, so uh, the same points that Richard was, was making kind of um, drove our decision to go down the venture route. Um, we don't need it. Our technology doesn't need a token to run. Um, so it would have made the product very difficult to, to work with. Um, so that's the, the, the kind of fundamental reason why we don't have a token and we're, we're probably not going to ICO. I reserve the right to change it if it, you know, an opportunity does arise and it, it does make sense. Um, and there's also the fact we deal with a lot of kind of law firms and, and kind of other regulated entities and there was an unknown there as to how are they going to be dealing with tokens? How are they going to hold tokens that run on the, the, the platform? So they're the kind of two main reasons for, for why we haven't to date. Um, but as I say, that may change if, if, uh, if the product evolves and, and requires a token in the, in the future. Hi guys, I'm Era. Um, so VeChain has a three-step way to world domination. Step one is not require a token. Step one was us stopping terrorists getting on planes by basically creating a layer that checks passenger identity before anyone gets to an airport. What we realized after step one is that our first client had over 100 million of identities checked a year. So imagine if you've got that verified, what else can you build on top of it? So step two, which is currently in production, is an embedded ID on an airline app that allows an airline to use all those verifications to do whatever their business logic says. Now step three is a very sexy reason the airline did invest in us. It's a client ID. So that 
it's going to be a network play. And again, I reserve the right to change just as Peter does. But right now, step three is in the works with a potential ICO, and we're going to see how that plays out after step two of world domination. Ben, could you maybe like tell us a bit more on uh, basically the implications of having like people out there who have like have any like vested interest because they are like token holders and they are like usually a pretty loud audience or so who uh, might like want like you to prioritize some features that are like also going to drive more value to them more quickly versus so on the other side obviously managing the asks and uh, the priorities of like your end users and how you balance that? Uh, it's an interesting question. So for the most part so far, and of course this may change in the future as we are unrolling the product uh, through the various stages we have advertised through the blog, right? So there are certain uh, capabilities within the browser where you can use uh, that the basic attention token and right now the, that functionality is still quite limited but then we have those further stages where you'll be able to do more and more and thus far and uh, maybe that's that's a good thing we've really been focusing on the quality of the product and there's you know uh, that's very much my focus personally and there's a ton of things to do right uh, i mean basic basic stuff like you know uh, faster browsing, you know, more effective ad blocking, you know, this and that. All of these things take time. We have obviously very strong competition, Chrome and Safari and IE and Firefox and so forth. Uh, so there is no shortage of things to do. So that's been primarily our focus. We have not, we've been really mostly driven by that, I'd say. I'm keen to get into the companies a bit more, but perhaps before that, um, while we're on the topic of ICOs, Richard, you've, you've written quite a few blogs on, on the topic, um, and, and I think you consulted for Filecoin and their ICO, obviously you were involved with um, Ethereum in the early days, and you've written about the Filecoin ICO too. Um, in your view, kind of, what should protocol developers be optimizing for in token sales? What are the kind of best token sales you've seen, um, and kind of what are the conditions we should be trying to reach with these? Yeah, so I really um, went and met the team only for a week, and the scope of what they were doing just blew my mind. Um, but the major sticking point for me was when uh, they decided uh, that they wanted to only sell to accredited investors. And for me, this was really um, hard to hear because part of my journey has been I was lucky enough to be there for the Ethereum token sale, and I in no way had the assets to to kind of call myself an accredited investor, but by participating in that, it kind of fundamentally changed my life. So I, I decided not to continue like consulting with the Filecoin project because I just we just had a fundamental disagreement there. But full shout out to my business partner Christian. He designed um, all the stuff for Coinlist and, um, and 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 a bunch of stuff for the Filecoin website. We didn't get to implement that, so I just wanted to kind of clear that up because I love what Filecoin are doing, but what makes me sad is that you've got file storage for the people funded by one percent. And, or even the 0.01%, because uh, there was only about 2,000 people who participated. And um, the thing that I'm really looking for in a great ICO now, I think I've nailed it down to kind of four things, is I'm, I'm looking for a lot of code to have already shipped. Um, I'm looking for some kind of community to have kicked off around the project. Um, I'm really looking for a sensible amount of capital raised, where they're not just raising an unlimited amount of money. And then I'm also looking at the possibility of compounding in the value of the, the, the protocol itself. 
And so to unpack that a bit, if you look at Ethereum, it was perfect. It had, it had a lot of code that it was experimenting with. It didn't work or anything, but it had a lot of work done. They had a real cool community around it, and I was just a tiny part of that for a few months. That was really all I, I contributed. Um, and then they, had, they raised a sensible amount of money, which was around $18 million. And then the value of the network has increased so that if you invest in the ICO, you've made a thousand times your money. And it's just not possible for some of these new protocols that are floating, you know, kind of ICOing at a billion, two billion, three billion to deliver those kind of returns. And so what I want is more protocols like ZRX and um, where they raise 24 million. I want more like Syndicator who are capping it at around 20, 22 million. And I want to see more people raising sensible sums of money and shipping incredible products. And, and, and that's why things like Brave really excite me. Um, so yeah, that, that's just my rough dive through my mental model for how to evaluate some of these shit coins. <laughs> I think Era uh, had a couple words on that as well. Yeah, um, who's heard of the down crash? Everyone? Yes. So the reason it fucked up, <laughs> excuse my French, it was, it was based on 20 grand worth of code. The code was shit. Ten bullshit code is one. But in terms of ICOs going forward, um, and a slightly more looking forward kind of comment that Lex had a slide about in terms of regulation, um, we are currently in a knife edge, is it going to hit us as not situation. Um, but there is a way around it. If you're building up to an ICO, future proof yourself. There's a coin uh, called NEO that people might have heard about. Yes, no? It's Chinese Ethereum. So um, the reason they're doing so well, not in September because Chinese don't invest in September. But um, the reason they're doing so well is they've built in the protocol, pre-existing directives, to offer the investors to return their money, which is the Securities Commission guaranteed kind of guideline already to do that. So if you're going to go down that path, look at the current securities regulation or whatever it is in your industry and just go for it. Do it the right way. Um, so to kind of take it on a different track and, and talk a little bit more about the, you know, the underlying blockchain technology, um, so, Ira, we, we've, I know we've spoken before um, yeah. Yeah, on the underlying philosophies between you know, private, public and permissioned blockchains and, and Jan spoke a little bit about it saying you know, it wasn't as black and white as, as people often um, kind of articulate it. But yeah, as we've spoken and as I understand VeChain, you guys kind of piggybacking off of the robustness of, of public blockchains and I was actually really interested to hear your views um, yeah, that, that private blockchains are um, aren't quite as robust. Um, so perhaps you could kind of explain a little bit more about where VeChain sits there and, and kind of your philosophy underlying that, um, that, that choice. Sure. Who in the audience understands the difference between private and public? Put your hand up. Keep your hand up if you can explain it and stand up right now. Ah, okay. <laughs> so I'm sure everyone here will say the same thing. Private blockchain is like a walled garden. There's a use and a use case for it, but public one is much more powerful because of the network effect. So if all of us in the room are playing a game and we all agree to abide by the rules, if there were then one person keeping check on the rules, probably some people could cheat. Imagine if every single person is being checked by someone to stick to the rules of the game, which is just what a fancy word for protocol is. So the reason it's powerful for us is VChain is trying to keep itself accountable for hundreds of millions of passenger data records, which are passports, their identities. Um, it's no small ask, it's quite dangerous for us to go down the route of private blockchains. So we've built a sidechain, which is another fancy word for your own kind of version of building that protocol. But we've linked it with anchors to not one, not two, but three public blockchains. Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, and Bitcoin for now. 
This is one way for us to distribute our risk. So this is distributing on distributed. Right? So we've gone quite crazy about this. But it's it's important for us. It's, um, you know, the reason we've done that, and we will be adding new blockchains. There's almost a thousand public blockchains right now. It's crazy. But we're assessing them for robustness. The best ones out there, we're going to be adding to our network because we believe that that's the best way forward to keep the highest integrity of data and not compromise ourselves. Does that make sense? And uh, Peter, so you, you mentioned that you guys are obviously working with a whole bunch of law firms and uh, you know enterprise customers, and as much as they might uh, seem like they're excited about blockchain, perhaps they're less keen on the actual implications of it. So is it, is it accurate to say that you guys have a kind of permissioned um, approach to, to blockchain technology? And, and kind of can you, can you expand a little bit more on that? Sure. Right. Um, so we um, we're essentially a clause. We're essentially a, a kind of middleware layer that sits above. Um, a variety of underlying protocols. So we sit on top of Ethereum, we sit on top of Chain, we uh, sit on top of um, Hyperledger Fabric. And uh, the idea being is that we essentially view the world as is going to move towards kind of a series of, of, of blockchains so each, that are in each of those kind of protocols. So um, take a legal contract, for example. A legal contract is not going to uh, interface just with one chain, in our view. It's going to interface with multiple chains. So you could have um, private supply chain uh, blockchain-based networks. You could have uh, land registry blockchain-based networks, um, provenance blockchain-based networks. So the idea is that we sit above all of those layers and uh, under the, above, above all of those um, kind of blockchains and we can interface with a variety of data sources on top. Um, so that's essentially the, the, uh, the approach that we take close. And Richard, can you maybe like tell us a bit more about like the longer term vision for balance, because I know that like yeah, there is like there like mentions of an interchain, etc. And I was interested to hear more so about that. <laughs> yeah, um, we think that uh, if the world is going to be tokenized, which a lot of people keep talking about, uh, that building a fantastic user interface for tokens should be valuable, um, and that's what we're focused on at Balance now. And so what that means is to start with, if you would like to hold some basic attention token and if you would like to also kind of exchange that for some of the other tokens that are available, that's going to be something that we can do in the near term. But a token is actually described by a contract, and right now nearly all of those contracts are sitting on the Ethereum blockchain. If you look at the top 50 tokens, I, I was uh, checking this out today, 44 of them are built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. And, and you can kind of inspect the code that is describing these tokens. And right now, there's not many things that you can do that are that interesting with it. But some of these tokens are going to get a lot more interesting. You can imagine a token that would hold all of your personal data, or could eventually hold your passport, or could allow you to do um, uh, a kind of uh, to book some kind of Uber or transit. And and we think that focusing on the user interfaces to start with, with just the ability to hold, buy, sell, and manage tokens will be useful. But in the long term, that if all of these blockchains succeed and they start to communicate with each other, that a single user interface for any kind of token um, could be very helpful. Ben, you, uh, you worked at Netscape, <laughs> one, of the, one of the early... One of uh, such a company, yes, <laughs> indeed. 
uh, what obviously yeah, created one of the early web browsers. Uh, so perhaps you can kind of speak to some of your thoughts on that too. Uh, do you think we're going to see a kind of blockchain browser? Or so let me let me try to reframe the question here, which is, I mean, when we speak about blockchain, right? So I mean, the fundamental property is that of integrity, which is a wonderful property, but obviously not the only one that one cares about. So fundamentally, we don't get privacy out of the box. We get very little by way of uh, scalability, by which I mean latency and throughput properties generally are not there for us either, right? And so fundamentally we've seen a number of proposals such as uh, payment networks, networks, that sort of thing, uh, many of which sound exciting but are still largely unproven. I mean, we've seen some experiments, we've seen prototypes, but I haven't seen a large-scale deployment of the kind that would make me believe that this is actually viable for millions of users and, uh, uh, I don't know, thousands of receivers, say, of payments, because in our case we have users of the browser and then we have uh, people who may receive payments and that, and we have to settle those transactions. And of course, as I mentioned just a second ago, we have fundamental privacy issues. So in our case, we cannot uh, be uh, open, shall we say, about uh, you know which which site the user visits, and so we need to implement protocols on top of uh, of that to uh, basically do accounting behind the scenes. And then fundamentally, again, uh, you know, blockchain gives us nothing really, right? We have to work long and hard to figure out ways to uh, work with blockchain to accomplish our goals. And in fact, I mean, again, let me give you yet another example of uh, uh, a case where blockchain, the, the openness or the fact that, you know, things are public is not what one needs, right? In the case of multiple advertisers bidding for a slot, yeah, on a web page, I mean, those advertisers don't necessarily <laughs> like each other. They don't want to make those bids explicit. They don't want to make those bids last, right? That is to say, you know, they don't want people studying the history of those transactions necessarily either. So it's, uh, well, quite a mixed bag, really, right? I mean, it enables certain scenarios well, yeah. but it makes other scenarios incredibly difficult, doesn't it? And so, you know, I don't know. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> my message is exercise caution, right? You have to figure out how to mix the right kind of properties. This is just one ingredient. I'm just curious because you sound quite pessimistic, but the internet was quite slow in the beginning. Um, do you know? Are you not? Because uh, I'm excited that now that we have uh, there's essentially billions of dollars on the table for anyone who improves blockchain scalability, and we have thousands and thousands of smart minds paying attention to it. Um, I'm confident that some of these layer two networks that are worth paying attention to. So um, there's this absolute Jedi who just rolled through the Bitcoin community and then rolled into the Ethereum community He's called Joseph Poon. And he explained that uh, you could create uh, a lightning network on top of Bitcoin where you would kind of pass around digital contracts or IOUs that would reconcile with the blockchain eventually. And then he came over to the Ethereum community and he's like, I know how, I know how to do um, implementations of computation that only touch the Ethereum blockchain every now and then. And this is a crucial thing that's got to get solved, because right now, all of the tech that they've had to build at Brave is because the Ethereum network can only handle 10 to 50 transactions a second. And that's being stretched to the limit with all of these crazy ICOs. Um, and so whoever solves scalability will you know, really do fantastically well. Um, but what gives me confidence is there are only perhaps a few dozen minds paying attention to it three, three years ago. 
And now you've got thousands of people who are extremely excited about the technology who also perceive that the person to solve it will do you know, incredibly well. So I, I, I'm a bit more optimistic. Absolutely true. I mean, yes, there are lots of developments uh, happening in, in this space. There's just quite, quite a lot of work that needs to be done. We had to hack scalability because we couldn't afford checking passenger data super slow. So we used um, very specific Merkle tree structures from our end. We, we had to figure out a way of checking hundreds of millions of data records very quickly if we needed to without having to go in to a database and actually manually check each one. So there's a data structure solution at the moment without the scalability solution. That's what we've implemented at VChain. Um, but it, the race is on, which is right. Whoever gets there first, it's going to be like the next Elon Musk. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so uh, Richard, you mentioned that one of the exciting things is that there's so many minds and eyeballs paying attention to the space now. So to, to kind of take it to the founders, um, have you found that this has actually been um, had, had a negative effect in terms of kind of recruitment, in terms of this so much noise in the space right now, uh, in terms of the ICOs, and, and it's kind of hard to determine signal. How, how have you guys approached recruitment specifically um, for your companies, um, kind of like which geographies have you found that there's like a lot of blockchain talent, and, and have you had any other difficulties in, in, in getting the right talent for your companies? I say one line, all, all of our devs are Israeli. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Well, if you, if you look at how kind of people's LinkedIn titles have changed over the past sort of like 12 months, um, everyone's a blockchain expert, uh, makes it very difficult to hire now. Uh, salaries have gone up. Uh, I mean, I think we, we, we've got, yeah, we, we've got uh, devs in, in the US and, and the UK, and there's a, there's a marked disparity uh, between the two. Um, so, I mean, we, we like to work with people in those jurisdictions because it... it I mean, they're where our kind of users are based and time zone benefits, but there's a bunch of great people. Berlin, I was in Berlin yesterday, there's, there's so many great people in that sort of ecosystem, uh, big chain and, uh, and those guys out there. So that's what I've noticed over the last kind of year. There's a, there's a lot of experts. Yeah. Maybe just um, Ira, I mean, you were you're obviously dealing with like those like large like aviation companies, there was yeah. airlines. I mean, did you see like a peak in their interest for like the technology? And that's also true, yes, for Brit and for for clothes. You guys are trying to partner with some of uh, those like incumbents also. I mean, is there like just like perception of the technology changing, or actually they are like, oh, that's too noisy. I will wait one or two more years more before like really jumping on this potentially. The big companies are good. They, they want proof that this stuff works. They don't just invest in a blockchain company for the sake of it. Um, they, they made us jump through hoops for months and months and months, which was fair enough. It was testing our capability, tasted their capability and the interaction between the two. But I find, please don't quote me on Twitter, blockchain's a bit like sex in, the, in high school movies. Everyone's talking about it, no one's doing it. <laughs> but, but it's true, and there's a lot of just the self-important child of I've heard this and this. You know, the very fact that there's over a thousand public blockchains tells you how noisy the space is. So ultimately, don't be a twat, best product wins, the end. <laughs> ben, Peter? Um, as far as hiring, is that that's the hiring? Yeah. Hiring, so look, I mean, we're hiring in a number of different disciplines, right? So we look for people with uh, a number of different skills. Uh, 
systems developers, machine learning, this and that. So blockchain is just one of those skills, right? But it, when it comes to dealing with uh, larger companies, it's, I mean, they're surprisingly open-minded is what they've been finding, mm -hmm. finding, right? Maybe it's because of the area we're in, which is advertising and they've suffered, you know, some losses of late and so it changes the ecosystem quite a bit. But yeah, I think I'm very positively surprised by some of the some of the interactions we've had so people are quite open-minded and uh, looking for new solutions and new ways to monetize and so forth richard you've made ben positive <laughs> <laughs> um yeah just love to get a show of hands who's interested about working in this space so anyone so i'd love to give a shout out to my friend zach shapiro um i registered a domain called protocoljobs.com and he said he wanted to run on it. So he's, he's, he's taken the domain and uh, he's just started a job board for jobs in the protocol space. Nice. And if none of those jobs appeal to you, just email him what you're good at. Um, and, and, and he will kind of help find you someone who, who, wants, to, who wants to hire someone with your skill set. So he's nice. a really good guy. Nice. One thing as well is that I want to make it clear, I have absolutely no idea how to build a blockchain. And I'm not very technical in that aspect. But what I brought to the Ethereum Foundation was an attempt to like visualize the distributed app store and kind of bring a little bit of design to some of the slides they were using to pitch their project. So I want to emphasize that if you're not an expert in cryptography or distributed systems, there's still lots of room for you to come work in this space. You've just got to find projects that will value your skill set. So whether it's in law or marketing or community building or creating videos or anything, it's about finding a protocol that you believe in and helping them, helping them kind of launch the project successfully. And, um, and so yeah, that, that, that's just a, a side point. Um, in terms of us right now, we're, we're quite small, we're just seven people, so nearly all the people uh, we've hired are, are people I know. Um, and um, one of the benefits of, of raising a, a relatively small amount of money in a crazy bull market is that I'm not able to offer you a quarter of a million dollars a year as a salary. Um, and, and, and so as a result, whereas if you're uh, going to join Tezos, I highly recommend you ask for three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars a year because they just raised, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars, and it's it's hard for a project that's raised that much money to look at their employees in the face and ask them to take a haircut on their salary. Uh, and so, I'm really excited about the fact that we've done a relatively sensible, you know, a, a crowdfunding round because it allows us to attract people who really care about what we're working on and who will care about growing the value of balance as a project rather than having to offer insane salaries and compete in a talent war. It's like more money than cents, right? We don't want that. Well, they, they actually wish they'd put a cap on their, their ICOs. Yeah. Like, like, again, a solidity contract that was implemented without any cap and just the amount of hype around Tezos, it was crazy. Um, but when I look at that founder, I see a very, very scared human being. Um, because you've got to deliver a $500 billion protocol before anyone gets a meaningful return. Uh, and, and I would be bloody terrified. I, 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 I would be quite frank, as this is my first time doing a startup, I'm terrified about delivering return on the people who invested in us. Uh, and it's microscopic compared to some of these protocols. So that's why I say look for people who are doing capped ICOs, look for people who are trying to solve a problem with a token, look for people who when you look them in the eye you think, I believe in you, and you, you seem like a good person because there's a lot of shit coins out there but there's a few people doing truly amazing things and while there might be a trillion blockchains that come out, a hundred of them really will have a huge impact and, and those are the ones you kind of want to search for. And so, Peter, maybe like some final thoughts. I know you just launched the Accor project or so. So, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of big enterprises. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's like the readiness that they have, the appetite they have? So, can you tell us a bit more maybe about it? Yeah. Um, 
So we, so we launched uh, an open source project called the, uh, the Accord Project uh, last week, a series of launches in, in London, New York, and, and Berlin. Um, the idea behind it is we, we obviously operate in the legal space, and um, it was a bit like the Wild West. Um, getting, getting law firms on board to, to use our, our product and protocol was, was very difficult in the first sort of 18 months of the company. Um, and that was largely driven by the lack of standards. So no lawyer was going to touch it because they didn't know what a smart legal contract looked like. They didn't know what kind of what data formats, how do you um, set standards for kind of open data, how do you set standards for executing smart legal contracts, how do you interface with um, smart legal contracts with existing legal doctrine, for example. Um, so there's a bunch of unresolved issues. Uh, and the Accord project really sets out um, to, to solve those issues. Um, we've got a bunch of law firms signed up. I think we've got over 100 lawyers signed up at, at last count. Um, and the goal is to really drive that space forward. Um, so we're trying to do our part to, to resolve some of these, uh, these kind of gray areas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.